All right, so I wanted to do something special. I try to do it every year, uh, an apologetic, just before Easter, because I assume that you will be at some point at the Easter festivities eating with relatives or friends, some of whom will not be Christians. And inevitably, <clears throat> some discussion about Jesus or Easter or the events of the week will come up. And so I want you to have uh, ammunition so that you're prepared for these discussions uh, and you're able to do it. And so one of the things that I want you to, to focus on is the empty tomb. And here's the point of our religion. If the tomb was not empty, if Jesus did not rise from the death, then you know what? Get up and go out and play golf, all right? Because your time really is wasted, really, here. We're talking about a lot of things. But at the end of the day, if Jesus Christ was not God himself and did not defeat death and rise from the grave, then everything collapses in on itself. It is totally dependent on the fact that on that Sunday morning, Jesus rose from that tomb. Uh, and that delivered us all effectively from death hereafter because of that event. So I want to focus on the events of the tomb. Uh, I want to give you some background information that you can have that'll give you a comfort level when you talk about this. Uh, and so uh, the, one of the key people relating to the tomb uh, is a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. You'll remember that I told you that story about Joseph of Arimathea, uh, who gave Jesus, you know, wrapped Jesus in the burial clothes uh, and put him in a rich man's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was reputed to be the wealthiest guy in Jerusalem. And so the, the uh, prophecies going back uh, to the Psalms and to Isaiah indicated that Jesus would be buried in the tomb of a wealthy man. So what's interesting is if you were crucified on a cross, you typically would be buried in a common grave. They would take your body down uh, and dump it in a grave. They would leave your body up there for a, a long period of time. The animals, the birds would, would peck at it. It's awful. Then they would just dump it into a common grave that might have 100 corpses. But Joseph of Arimathea, uh, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, uh, but became a follower of Jesus, reason that he wanted to have Jesus buried in that tomb. Now, there's a story that I told uh, to my Monday morning class, I don't think I told it here, that's in secondary evidence, that sometime after this event, people in Jerusalem that knew uh, Joseph of Arimathea went up to him and said, hey, Joe, what is it? Why did, you, why did you put Jesus in that rich man's tomb? Uh, and Joe said, oy vey, I knew he was only going to need it for the weekend. <laughs> now, you won't find that in the Bible, but at some time over this week, I think you could tell that story to somebody, and I think it would, I think it would put a smile on their face because it really does say everything we want. So here's the deal. He's a rich man, all right? And he's a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. Whoa, that's a big deal. He's a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, you remember that the Sanhedrin unanimously 
voted to condemn Jesus. Unanimously voted to condemn Jesus. So this becomes problematic. Why would a guy who was on the Sanhedrin uh, vote uh, vote to, to uh, see Jesus executed and then effectively go back and, and be involved in burying him in his tomb? Well, the answer is that Luke himself was discomforted by that. And so Luke researched it. And if you turn uh, to Luke chapter 23, give you some interesting backup data. Luke 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not, underline that, who had not consented to their decision. Luke 23, all right, verse 50. Who had not consented to their decision and action, meaning he was not there when that vote was taken, most likely. He had not consented. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, placed it in a tomb cut in a rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. And I have not ever had the privilege to go to Israel. I hope to be able to do that within the next year or two. Uh, but people that have have told me that that tomb is very close to where Jesus was crucified. And it's still in a very uh, beautiful location, they tell me. So here he is, Jesus now being buried in that tomb. Uh, And so let's understand what these early tombs were like. These tombs were cut out of the rock. They had low entranceways. The the, uh, entrance to the tomb is a small opening. And what would happen as it's cut out of the rock, what would happen is a large disc-shaped uh, rock would be rolled over. It would take a couple men to roll it in place. And so this rock is rolled into place after Jesus' body is wrapped and, and anointed in burial. The, the rock is rolled in place, uh, and now it seals the tomb. And furthermore, we know from other evidence that there were guards posted at the tomb. Now, uh, Some people say they were all Roman guards. Some people say they were temple guards. Whatever it was, there were some combination of Romans and temple guards guarding the tomb to keep the disciples from stealing the body because the Sanhedrin was very, very worried that the body of Jesus would disappear, and they knew that that would be trouble because if the body was not there, then this nascent religion would explode. Uh, and they, they effectively would lose their power. Uh, and so pretty much all historians that are New Testament historians agree that there was a Joseph of Arimathea, that there's historical evidence of that, and that Jesus was buried in that tomb. Everybody understands that there was a real Jesus. They know that, that there was a crucifixion. And so he was buried in that tomb. We know that from even sec- secular evidence. Now, the very earliest mention of the, of the burial of the, in the tomb is found in the Gospel of Mark. Mark uh, is John Mark. Uh, he was a disciple of Peter. He assisted Peter. And John Mark writes the, the uh, Gospel of Mark. And that probably is written within five to seven years as, as they keep recalculating us and recognizing that these events are, have been written even closer in time to the crucifixion. Five to seven years of that, of that crucifixion. And so now, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
because 1 Corinthians chapter 15 winds up being the earliest creed of the church. It is what we stand for, uh, and you can see that beginning in verse 3. Paul writes of this creed, and he most likely would have gotten this creed either in Damascus when he was saved, and this would have been probably three years after Jesus was crucified, or when he went subsequently to Jerusalem. Uh, but somewhere between Damascus and Jerusalem, Paul received this creed, which was the early creed of the church. It's what we stand for. Uh, and because it was so early, before legends could have been built up or, or uh, stories would have been elaborated, it is considered to be highly, highly reliable. So if you read uh, along with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. And the question means abnormally born, meaning what? Born of the Holy Spirit after the events, all right? Born through the Spirit. And so here you see, uh, and I believe personally that Paul was the 12th apostle, all right? The, the, the apostles uh, appointed Matthias, and that's what we do as human beings, you know, we try to get the, the best available guy, but I think at the end of the day, God trumps it, and Paul was the 12th apostle. You can't say it any other way, really. And so he's writing this creed, telling the world the very historical predicate of why we know that Jesus rose from the grave. It was, it was prophesied in, in the Bible. Jesus himself said, just like the Son of Man would, would be in, in the earth for three days as Jonah was in the belly of the, of the fish, the Son of Man would also rise on the third day. The jo Jesus multiple times mentioned it to the disciples the third day. I've done an apologetic with you in which I showed you that beginning in Genesis with Abraham, there are multiple references to the third day, multiple references, probably at least 25 or 30, uh, the third day. So something incredible was going to happen on the third day, and typical with God, he gives advance notice of the event. He gives advance notice of the event. And so here it is. Uh, we know that Jesus, on the third day, rose from the dead. Now, let's talk about Joseph of Arimathea, just to prove uh, the reliability of the account. If you were a person, if you were a first century uh, Christian in the nascent church, and you were trying to come up with someone who would be a reliable spokesman to prove that, that this story happened, Joseph of Arimathea wouldn't be the guy. You wouldn't pick a guy who was on the Sanhedrin... You wouldn't pick a guy who was in the ruling body that voted to execute Jesus. You wouldn't make that choice. You wouldn't make that choice. You would make some other choice. But you see how God is? God doesn't care about how your choices are. The very fact that Joseph of Arimathea is so outside the parameter of what we might choose to show the reliability of the story shows how God thinks differently. 
Uh, and so that, in fact, I believe makes it trustworthy, just like the creed is trustworthy. The fact that, that Paul writes this when many of these people are still alive. He's writing this and he's telling about these many people are alive. Don't you think that one of them or one of the 500 or one of the people that have been named or you've named Joseph of Arimathea. You said Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus and put him in the tomb and had the rock closed. Don't you think that if he did not do that, Joseph of Arimathea, people would say, hey, I know that guy. That's a lie. That didn't happen. He didn't do that. The very fact that you nominate somebody with specificity during that period of time underscores the fact that it's reliable because you have the evidence that can be double-checked. It's like putting a case in court. So the very fact that you name the people, that you indicate who they are, that they're alive at the time that these creeds are written uh, underscores the fact that it is accurate and reliable and you can depend upon it. Uh, and so people can check it out during that period of time. And you would expect that if it were not the, not the case, you would hear some Jewish people write an article, uh, or you would see some statement by the Jewish leaders indicating that the Christians had lied, it had been fabricated, but that's not the case. And so it is fundamentally reliable. We can take it to the bank and understand that very much. Now, let's talk about the guards at the tomb. And so you know the story, you know the story that, that we rely on as a church. We say that at some point on Sunday morning, uh, uh, Jesus is resurrected. The power of God invades that tomb and the body of Jesus comes to life. Uh, and so the, the guards from the stories that we read were frightened at this earthquake in the presence of angels and flee and leave. So, uh, here's the thing. Early Christians would say, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Jesus has fled. The early Jews would say, no, that's a lie. You went in there and you robbed the body. And then Christians would say, no, that's a lie. You had guards posted at the, at the tomb. And the, and the Jews would say, no, that's a lie. The, the guards fell asleep. That's the, that's the thing. The guards fell asleep. Uh, and then after they fell asleep, you, know, you robbed the body. Well, I mean, just think about how silly that is, all right? And it's not one or two guards. It were multiple guards, all right? And the tomb was sealed. They fell asleep uh, after they had been put in charge of this event. It's nonsensical. And we know that in, in the Gospels, it says that the guards, after fleeing and seeing this event, go back into the high priest and tell the high priest what happened. And the high priest says to them, don't worry, we'll cover you. Here's a large amount of money. Just say that you fell asleep. And that's how this story got, got started. So the question becomes this. Well, how do we know? How do we know that there were, in fact, guards there? Because the story I just gave you is the event. Well, here's the thing. Uh, it's because right from the beginning, if the if the uh, uh, the Christians said, if the Christians said, uh, no, we didn't steal the body. There were guards there. What do you think the Jews would have said if there were no guards? There were no guards, right? There were no guards. But those words are never uttered. You understand? The very fact that they didn't raise that issue, there were no guards, proves that there were guards, 
okay, that there were guards. So you can reliably uh, use that in your understanding. So yes, there were guards because they themselves never said that there were no guards. They just claimed that, that these guards had fallen asleep, which was just completely ridiculous in that assertion. Um, and so now uh, people now begin to try to dis, uh, knock the story of the, uh, of the crucifixion and the resurrection by saying, well, wait a minute, let's look at the story of, the, of Resurrection Sunday. Let's talk about that. Really, there seems to be a number of stories and accounts in the Gospels that are different. They don't match up. They're not all the same. And let's talk about that. They talk about the uh, discrepancy. Well, for example, in Matthew, when Mary Magdalene and the other Mary arrive towards dawn at the tomb, there's a rock in front of it. And then there's a violent earthquake, and an angel uh, comes and rolls back the stone. That's Matthew 28, uh, verses 1 to 7. You can read that on your own. That's their testimony. In Mark, a little bit of different story. In Mark, the women arrive at the tomb at sunrise, and when they arrive, a stone has already been rolled back, already rolled back. In Luke, when the women arrive uh, at early dawn, and you notice it's all at the same time, early dawn, they find that the stone had already rolled, rolled back, had been rolled back. That's Luke 24, verses 1 to 8. In Matthew, an angel is sitting on the stone outside the tomb, and, and, and in Mark, a youth is inside the tomb. All right? So in varying stories, one time the angel is sitting outside, one time the angel is sitting uh, inside the tomb. In Luke, two men, angels, are inside the tomb. In Matthew, the women are present, women present at the tomb are Ma Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. In Mark, the women present at the tomb are the two Marys and Salome. In Luke, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, Joanna, and the other women are present at the tomb. Look at the common story. This common story is they arrive early on Sunday morning, and it's all women, and we're going to talk about that. <laughs> Ladies, we're going to talk about that. It's all women, and there are angels, and in varying permutations of that, the story remains the same. Now, let me tell you something. One of the things that you recognize, and I could tell you this from court uh, presentations, that when you have multiple eyewitnesses, you will always find some variation in the story. But you look to see if the core event is consistent. Meaning what? Did Jesus leave the tomb? Was he resurrected bodily from the tomb? And all the, stor all the stories confirm. Was the stone moved? Yes. Were there angels present? Yes. Every single story says that. They all say the same. So while there are some inconsistencies in some of the telling of the stories, you have to recognize that the Gospels were written, probably excluding John, over a period of about 10 to 15 years. Mark first, then you have Matthew, then you have Luke. Luke was one of the greatest historians in the history of the world. Luke, who when he wrote this, individually interviewed the eyewitnesses. That's how great Luke was. He looked for the eyewitnesses' accounts. And so you can understand it that, that there would be some slight variation. But don't, let's make it clear. The, the core of the story is absolutely correct. 
And so all of the inconsistencies are in the secondary details, but the, the core of the story is always the same, that a group of women followers of Jesus appear early on Sunday morning uh, following his cru crucifixion, and they find the tomb is empty. They see a vision of angels, uh, that Jesus is risen, risen, and careful historians recognize that. Careful historians recognize this, that as long as the core of the story is remaining intact, that secondary discrepancies can vary. In fact, that helps to st support the very evidence of the story. It was not as if they all sat in a room and said, okay, what should we say first? Then what should we say next? You know, almost the way you would try to concoct the story you were going to try to prevent in court, present in court. None of that is, is taking place here. It's very different. So no one tried to organize the details. All of them come together to support the story. Um, now, there's another discrepancy. The other discrepancy that critics will say, well, wait a minute. Jesus said that his body would rise on the third day. This wasn't the third day. He only stayed in the ground a day and a half. He only stayed in the ground a day and a half. So, you know, part, it's part Friday, right? He's, he's crucified on Friday. He's died. He, it's part Friday. It's all day Saturday, and it's only a couple hours on Sunday. Matt's only a day and a half. It's baloney that it's three days. Well, wait a second now. Wait a second. Let's go back and understand how Jews related to time. To a Jew during this period of time, it was very clear, any part of a day would be considered the day, all right? Even if it were only an hour or two, it would be considered the day. So what does that mean? Friday, day one, Saturday, day two, Sunday, day three. So clearly, historically and theologically, it ties up. It's, it's all the same. Now, here's the next question. Can the witnesses be trusted? This is one of the most amazing things about our faith. You see, Christianity, unlike any of the other religions really, even to this day in this world, elevates women. You can clap for that. <laughs> Christianity elevates women, all right? Judaism did not elevate women. Judaism denigrated women. If you were a woman, a woman in the first century Jewish culture, you couldn't testify under oath. Your, your testimony could not be used in court. In fact, the rabbis would say it's a waste of time and paper to teach uh, women the Jewish faith. Don't teach them about the Torah and don't teach them about the law. It's a waste of paper. It's disgraceful. It is disgraceful uh, how women were, were treated that way. But you see, you don't see that in Christianity because right from the beginning, Jesus loved these people and he braced them and he treated them with equality. There is absolute equality in Christianity between men and women. <laughs> I'll go to my death saying that, all right? And maybe I'll look a little bit different than some evangelical leaders, but I don't care because I don't see it that way at all. I believe God created us equally and, and, and has given women an important role, an important role. And there is no more important role than being a witness in the first century at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you were concocting a story and you wanted it to be believed culturally by, by all kinds of Jews, would you have women 
be the very witnesses of it? No, you wouldn't do that. You'd be undercutting yourself. Oh, no, you can't have women tell this story. And yet in every single evidence of this story that's told, women can become the key witnesses. Uh, and so here's it. The extraordinary part of this story is that the empty uh, tomb would feature women as the discoverers of the empty tomb. Here they are on the very lowest rung of the social ladder in first century Palestine. In every way, their testimony considered worthless in all kinds of important hearings and in the Jewish courts of law. And yet the chief witnesses that God would direct are women, indicating that God's law comes first. God's law comes first. You can have all your little ridiculous traditions, but at the end of the day, God determines. God determines how the story is told. And so all of these accounts wind up being women seeing the, the first evidence of the empty tomb, then going to see men and doing it. And so this demonstrates what? It demonstrates that the early gospel writers were faithful to the facts. They didn't embellish it. It wasn't writer creativity. It was, in fact, the very way, the very way that this story was told. Now, here's another thing. Uh, why did the women visit the tomb? Did you ever stop to think about it? Jesus was dead. Why did they go down there? Uh, and they really went down there to anoint the body. That's what the, the, the gospels tell us. They went down to anoint the body of Jesus. Now, did they know the tomb was sealed? Yes, they knew the tomb was sealed. But the stories tell us that they were considering, well, who would, break, who would move the rock for us? Who would move the stone so that we could anoint the body of Jesus? So that's why it was. And you have to understand, if you lost somebody that you loved and you thought that your world was wrapped around and he were, you were completely devoted to him and he was the very essence of your future and here you saw him die this horrible death, you would have been heartbroken and you also would have gone down there uh, to, to pray and to, and to worship and to anoint the body. Here he is. You thought he was the Messiah, and your world has come to an end. And so that's why they went down there. Uh, and it was in the forlorn hope of anointing the corpse of Jesus Christ. That's why they came there. And they were going to visit that tomb in order to pour oils on his body, which was not unusual. It was typical of that day. And so that's why the women were doing this. Where were the men? Gone. Gone. Splitsville. You understand? Splitsville. All right? Every man for himself. See, that's what makes the designation of Joseph of Arimathea even more infuriating, if you think about it, to an early Jew. The disciples themselves, the followers, are gone. They took off. All right? They're gone. But Joseph of Arimathea, a Pharisee, a guy in the Sanhedrin, he's there. He takes the body. He brings the body into the tomb. Honestly, well, what a story, really, when you think about it. And all of, all of the classical figures are people who shouldn't be classical figures. And all of that adds up to the highly reliable matter of the account. Uh, and so let's, let's understand this. Now, early Christians, the early Christians at the very earliest event, all right, so we're talking now in the, in the years 30 AD, uh, right after Jesus' uh, death, 
all of them, all of them spoke regularly about the, the tomb. Look at Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 22. And so here we have Peter speaking at the day of Pentecost. Uh, this is about 40 days after Jesus would have ascended to heaven. Um, and so here it is. This is really within a period of uh, uh, six or seven or eight weeks from Jesus cr being crucified. And now we know that there are numerous eyewitnesses. Peter has already told you that there are more than 500 eyewitnesses. You've seen that in the early creed. And now look what Peter says here uh, in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This is standing right outside of the upper room uh, after the Holy Ghost this, uh, suspends itself on the church. There are uh, tongues of fire uh, on the people in the upper room, the 120. He's now standing outside. He is now under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And now he speaks to the crowd. And look what he says in one of the great speeches that you will find, great sermons anywhere in the scriptures. Verse 22, men of Israel, Jews, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. And by the way, again, eyewitness testimony. I saw the miracles. I saw the signs. I saw the wonders. And so did you. And so did you. And it was God that gave him the power to do that. And so you saw it. All right. He said, this is, this is really an indictment of a people. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And I love that because what that means is Jesus did not go to his death by an accident. It was all within the predetermined foreknowledge of God from the beginning of time that the world was created, that God knew that the world would be lost and needed a savior, and Jesus volunteers to be that savior. So let's understand something. Nothing here is accidental, even though they were the people who chose to be the participants Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's said purpose and foreknowledge, and you, you, with the help of wicked men, Romans, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But here it comes. Here it comes. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him, David said, said about him, and this is David's psalm. This is in David's psalm. Uh, you see this. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not sh be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave. Listen, David was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. Make no mistake about it. And so what is he standing here? Is he saying that David himself will be abandoned to the grave? David's body was buried in a tomb. All right. David's body stayed there. David was not resurrected from the dead. But what does it say here? Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Understand this? It's their Bible. Read your Bible. He told you he was not going to let his Holy One, his Son, the Messiah, be in decay. He raised him from the dead. Can you see this? 
that's developing, and Peter's standing there going like this, all right? And, and the 120 are up there speaking in languages that, the, that, that they never knew before. Can you imagine the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, here's 2,000 people come to faith as a result of this event. Oh, my Lord Jesus. Um, in verse 29, brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But here's the point. His body decayed. But the body of Jesus Christ, who you put in that tomb, is resurrected and did not decay. It all comes together. Now, this sermon is being given seven weeks after the event of the crucifixion. You want something in close timeline? And who's, who's writing it? Luke, the greatest historian, I believe, in the history of the world. And so you see all of it coming together to indicate that there is solid, solid evidence that Jesus Christ exited that tomb that day, was brought out from the dead in a glorified body, defeated death, and as a result of him defeating death, that you have the confidence today, and you see Easter morning, that you know that someday you yourself, you yourself will be with Jesus Christ because of his beating death on that day. How about an amen for that? I mean, this is an extraordinary story. The tomb was empty. Make no mistake about it. The tomb was empty. Uh, there, there were many, many eyewitnesses. As I studied this before, I said that if you started on Monday morning uh, at 8 a.m. and you put each of the witnesses that Peter delineates, you put each of them on the stand and let them spend 15 minutes telling the story, you would start 8 o'clock Monday morning and go around the clock or around the clock till Friday at 5 p.m. And, and they would still be testifying about the reliability of the empty tomb. Make no mistake about it. You can take it to the bank. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The tomb was empty. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you, Father, for raising him from the dead. I thank you for salvation. I thank you that each and every one of us here has the knowledge of who you are in our heart. And we know, Lord, that we will be with you uh, when we pass, that we will sit there with you, that we will see our loved ones who predeceased us because we have that knowledge and confirmation in our heart that the tomb was empty. We recognize it is the seminal event of mankind. There is no event in the history of the world more important than that. We thank you, Father. We praise you and we worship you. Bless our people this week. Give them a greater realization of what Easter means this week. Help them to be able to speak to people who are lost and explain it as well. Protect them and bring them back safely on Monday. We put all of this in, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Bring you back Sunday, not Monday.